Our scripture reading this morning is 1 John 1, 1 through 4, which can be found on page 1021 in the Pew Bible. Please stand for the reading of God's word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. This is the God's word. Let's pray together as we open God's word. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lord, would that be the shout of joyful acclamation that comes every time we open your word to hear from you. Because in every passage, in every song, In every turn of the page of your word, that is the message. Hallelujah, what a Savior. May we see it this morning. Give us ears to hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we uh, had the chance, like many of you, to travel um, over Christmas, and we were able to go back and visit family in Nebraska uh, for about a week or so. And one of the... uh, relatively unique privileges uh, when we go home for both me and my wife is being able to go back and visit our childhood home. Um, My parents bought the house that they still live in when I was one year old. And so when we go back, you know, and they've remodeled and done different things, but it's really going home. And and, uh, Carissa was in the fifth grade when her parents bought their house on 36th Street in Lincoln. And, And there's just something special about being able to go back to the place where you were raised. There's a familiarity and a comfort and just kind of a peace and a rest that comes with that. Uh, You can eat at your favorite restaurant. Uh, Just the familiarity of the landscape as you're driving around. Um, Even, you know, you you smell a certain blanket or something like that, and there's just that smell that takes you back to your childhood. Um, There's a peace, a security, and so on. And, And, of course, that assumes, that experience assumes that your home was a safe place when you grew up, and, and sadly, that's not always the case. Uh, but even if it isn't the case, we know that what the idea of home is supposed to be like. It's supposed to be that kind of place, a place where you can be yourself, uh, where you can rest secure, knowing that you are loved, a place where our hearts are at rest. To uh, quote a recent film, uh, it's the place where you can say with Han Solo when he steps back onto the Millennium Falcon, Chewie, we're home. You know. But for the Christian, uh, home isn't so much a place as it is a person. The settledness and the security and, and rest that, that we uh, long for cannot ultimately be found in brick and mortar or even in the arms of our parents but only in intimate communion with God. 
to know God and to be known by him, to have an intimate relationship with him. That is where the Christian truly finds oneself at home. And that's really true for every person, if you think about it. Uh, We all long for, whether we realize it or not, this is what we all long for, this kind of intimate relationship with our maker and our savior. Uh, In his confessions, Augustine famously said of God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That is the human story. That is the human story. We were made for relationship with God. That's part of what it means to be made in God's image. Uh, We were designed to be able to know God as a child knows a father. Uh, We were saved for intimate relationship with God. If you think about how the Bible describes what it is that Jesus came to do, uh, think of the the famous verse in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Well, what does Jesus mean by eternal life there? What is it that Christ came and did? Uh, Well, he tells us later in John uh, 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's what it is that Jesus came to accomplish, that, that we might know and love and be known and be loved by God for all eternity in perfect peace and wholeness with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. We were made for and we are saved for intimacy with God. And yet, how many of us uh, can say that that word intimacy is what describes our current relationship with God at this moment. Um, You know, there are probably seasons where all of us can reflect on just deep times of of, of just intimate communion with God, but I would guess for many of us that there are just as many times in our lives where we kind of feel uh, more dry and and even are filled with doubts and, and so on. We feel distant, unsettled, superficial, disconnected. We may even wonder at times, do I even know God? Am I even a Christian? Sometimes the busyness of our daily routine uh, robs our time with God and kind of spoils that sense of intimacy. We can never slow down or stop for long enough to actually be with him and spend time with him because we got to get to the next thing. Sometimes our sin and our shame builds a wall between us and God. Um, We feel guilty before him and undeserving of his love. And even though he's trying to lavish that love on us, we hide ourselves because we don't feel like he should do that. Sometimes our expectations of God go unmet. We thought he was going to do something and he didn't come through. And we we find ourselves just kind of dislocated and disenchanted, uh, even suspicious. And maybe, you know, we're not sure what happened, but we simply just live with this quiet restlessness in our relationship with God, wondering, did I miss something? Is there more? Is this what it's supposed to be? And of course, you know, to complicate that, there are voices out there uh, reinforcing this sense of restless disconnection. Uh, There are voices. 
voices in the world telling us that we are wasting our time on Jesus. That what this world has to offer really can satisfy that longing in your heart. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride and possessions. And there are even voices in and around the church that can fuel that disenchantment and dislocation uh, in our communion with Christ. Voices that subtly challenge the truthfulness and sufficiency of the gospel that we've believed. Telling us that, that if we really want to know God, you need something more than Jesus or something different. Offering some new spiritual secret that's going to you know, change our lives. And sometimes when you know, we're in that struggle, we're, we're so dry and thirsty that we can barely tell the difference between what is an oasis and what is a mirage in our longing for the Lord. So we crave intimacy with God. Whether we acknowledge it or realize it, we crave it. We were made for intimacy with God. We will never be at rest without intimacy with God. But what does real intimacy actually look like? What does it mean to know God and be loved by God in that kind of deep connection way? How can we truly know God? And how can we be sure that it's the God of the Bible we truly know? Uh, These are all some of the questions that the Apostle John wants to help answer for us in the three letters that we're going to be looking at over the next several months, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. Uh, Those scholars uh, argue about these things. The the evidence, uh, to my opinion, strongly suggests that that the John who wrote the gospel, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, is the same John who wrote the letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and, in, in my opinion, the book of Revelation as well. The writing style, the vocabulary, the themes of these books all bear the marks of the same author. Which means that when we come to 1 John uh, and, and the other two shorter letters with it, that in many ways what we have is an application of John's gospel. So John has written a gospel, a narrative of the life of Christ. And what he's doing in these letters is he's taking that message and he's bringing it to bear on the life of the church. Right? The message that, that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name and he's bringing that to bear on the daily life and experience of the church. A church that was in John's day marked by kind of a similar restlessness to what we often feel and was threatened by similar false solutions to that restlessness other ways other messages of how you can really know god that that may or may not have anything to do with christ as we're going to see through this letter uh that you know within the church that john was writing to probably the church in ephesus we're not 100 percent sure um, but we know from the letter itself that there had been within that church a group of people who came to reject the gospel in in both their doctrine and in their practice. And though by the time John writes this letter, they had left that church, they were still pretty influential on it. And not that John is quite concerned. And they were still sending people around trying to promote this kind of new teaching, this new way of knowing God uh, that uh, was disconnected from the true gospel of Christ. And so the goal of John's letters is really twofold. First, 
He wants to warn the church about the danger of those who have gone out from them teaching a different gospel. One that was challenging and confusing those who had staked their claim on Christ and are now being told that that's wrong or that's not enough. There's something more that you need. There, there was confusion. There was uh, fear and disenchantment. And so he's warning against uh, those folks. But the second reason he writes this, uh, and really, in some ways, the deeper reason that he writes these letters is to anchor and reassure the church in the message that they have already believed about Christ. To remind them that what they heard in the beginning, what they have believed, is still true and is still enough. That you don't have to add to the gospel or move on from the gospel. That Jesus really is enough. That real fellowship, true intimacy with God is found in Jesus Christ. As he says in chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants to reassure them and anchor them in the truth of the message that they have already believed in and staked their hope on. In other words, John writes these letters because he wants to lead us home. He wants to remind us that when it comes to intimacy with God, Christ is our home. That's where we find it. It's not a place. It's a person. You can't improve upon him or replace him. He really is the way, the truth, and the life. And that's what he emphasizes from the very first uh, verses of his letter. So if you'll look with me at 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And John gets us started with a picture of, of what we might describe as Christ-centered intimacy. Christ-centered intimacy. Now, when you are lost um, or disoriented or, or setting out to try and find your way home, uh, when you guys move here, just you know that's going to be a common experience for the first few months. You, you think you, you, when you come from like the square roads of Texas and you move to New England, um, you know, you don't know what direction you're going at any given point. And so when you're trying to find your way home, the first thing you need is a navigation point. You need to figure out where you are so that you can make sure you're headed in the right direction. And that's what John is giving us in these opening verses. He's helping us make sure that we're facing in the right direction as we pursue intimacy with Christ so that uh, we can get there. And, and that navigation point that he's setting is the gospel that he has already preached in the gospel of John. He's taking us back to the message that was proclaimed by the apostles and passed on to the church. Now, when you, look, when you actually look at John's opening verses and you kind of get familiar with his writing style, you'll notice that, that John can be a little bit poetic in his letters. Um, he uses a lot of imagery and uh, word pictures. And sometimes... You have to follow him for quite a while until he actually makes his point. It can feel a bit vague. And then it's like, oh, that's what he's talking about. But, you know, and, and we certainly, in my opinion, have that experience in, in this opening paragraph. But I think we can summarize what he's after here under three headings. The message of the gospel, 
the right, the reliability of the gospel and the aim of the gospel. That's what he wants us to know as he kind of takes our shoulders and, and points us in the right direction in our pursuit of God. The message, the reliability, and the aim of the gospel. And we'll start with the message in verses 1 through 2. So verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. So you can feel that poetic style right away, right? You know, there's repetition there. There's imagery. There's a, an elusiveness or a vagueness for a little bit. You, you're not quite sure what it is that he's seen and heard and touched until he gets to the end of the sentence, uh, the word of life. And even then, what does that mean? Uh, you don't find that out until you get to the end of the next verse. The eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And even then, we only really know what he's talking about there if you keep reading the rest of the letter or if you go back to the Gospel of John where he uses very similar imagery and descriptions to talk about Jesus Christ. That's who he's focusing on. Jesus is the Word the one who was with the Father and appeared to us. Again, John opens his, his gospel with the exact same imagery to describe Jesus to us. So John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then in verse 14 he says, And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so G John, in, in, a, in a somewhat poetic roundabout way, is introducing us to Jesus. And he's describing him to us as the Word, the Word of life, the message. He is the revelation of God. Uh, he is a message that is eternal. He's from the beginning. Uh, he was with God in the beginning before creation. This word is eternal. This word is divine. The word was with God and was God. And this message is not just words. It is actually a person. Uh, God is making himself known through the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this eternal divine person became human. We've seen him. We've touched him. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so John, as he begins talking about and, and directing our steps towards what it looks like to walk with God in an intimate relationship, fixes our attention firmly on Jesus Christ, the word of life. That's how he describes him. He is the word the message, the revelation of God, but specifically the word of life, the message that Jesus came to, to preach and to embody is a message of life, of eternal life with God. That's what John saw. He saw true life. Verse 2, the life was made manifest. It appeared, and we have seen it. 
And that's the message that John turned around and proclaimed. We've seen it and testify it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and which was made manifest to us. The eternal life. You can replace that phrase there with the name Jesus and you get what he's talking about. Jesus is the eternal life. So the message of the gospel in John's language is that Jesus came to give eternal life to sinners like you and me. Like even though we don't deserve it, even though we've sinned against God and we've rebelled against him, uh, even though there's nothing we can offer God that will make it worth his time to save us, Jesus came, lived for us the life we couldn't live, died for us the death we deserve to die in order to give us an abiding, unending, intimate relationship with God, eternal life, real fellowship, true intimacy. And so what John proclaimed earlier in his gospel, he wants the church to know that that is still true. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He has passed from death to life. And John 14.6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So intimacy with God, to know God genuinely and deeply. Intimacy with God is Christ-centered. It's Christ-centered. You cannot know God truly or intimately unless you know him through the person of Jesus Christ. But why should we trust that message? That's John's point. That's the message of the gospel. Why should we trust that, though? Why should we trust this gospel over against other suggestions on how to know God? Uh, and, you know, or, or why should we trust that, that the gospel really is sufficient and that we don't need to add to it? Because if we're honest, sometimes it feels like what we already have heard and believed doesn't really seem to make much of a difference sometimes. Jesus Died for my sins and rose again. I get it. But, but why do I still feel so distant from God? Uh, or discouraged or alone? Why uh, do, do you know, relationships or, or religious activities that, that were once meaningful and enjoyable, why do they feel so rote and surface level? I'm just going through the motions with my friends. Going through the motions Sunday morning. Or once cherished beliefs about God begin to feel like kind of misplaced assumptions thought this was true about God, but he, he doesn't, he, he kind of seems to be letting me down. Um, what if I'm missing something? H- how do we know that the, that the message John was trying to get across in his gospel is still the message that the church needs today? Uh, maybe, you know, we, we need to add some of the, you know, the, the latest Christian self-help book that promises that spiritual breakthrough. If you buy the book, you're not going to figure that out on your own. You've got to buy my book. Or, you know, a different experience of faith. I need a new tradition or an old tradition or something that's going to fill in 
what's missing in Christ? How do we know the gospel is in fact reliable? That's the second thing that John emphasizes in his introduction. The reliability of the gospel. It's reliable because it is a message anchored in the witness of the apostles. The witness of those who were with Jesus and knew him and saw him. Look again at uh, the opening couple of verses in 1 John and notice how John describes his interaction with the word of life. So that which was from the beginning, which we have heard and seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it. And then he reiterates it again in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. And that's a lot of repetition. And usually when an author is repeating something, he's trying to make a point. His point here is, is that this language is very experiential. This, you know, the gospel is not something that was made up out of thin air. People saw Jesus with their own eyes. They heard him with their own ears. They actually touched him. They traveled with him. They watched his ministry. The gospel isn't just something made up out of thin air, and nor is the message of Christ the kind of spirituality that you can kind of, you know, believe, but doesn't really matter if it actually happened in history or not. There's a lot of, you know, stuff today you can pick up that, you know, maybe a good principle or, or, or promises some, some sort of intimacy with some sort of God-divine figure, but it's not rooted in anything historically. Um, the gospel doesn't work that way. If Jesus didn't really live and die and rise, the message of the Bible is a sham. It's, it's garbage. Nor is the message of Christ some secret knowledge that was given just to a select few. And you've got to know somebody who knows somebody in order to get in on the inside information. What Christ did, he did in public. He taught in public. He did his miracles in public. He died in public. And he rose in public. People saw him. There were, at one point, over 500 witnesses in one occasion, Paul tells us. And the message of what Christ did in public to rescue us from our sin and to bring us back to God. This message he entrusted to people who were actually there. People who saw him, who saw him risen, who could take that message and turn around and pass it on to others and give testimony and evidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing in him, our risen Lord may have life in his name. We call them the apostles, the messengers. They were the eyewitnesses of Christ. And so you notice that that when John talks about the confidence that he has in this gospel message, he's not just basing it on his own personal testimony, which he could have done. He was there. He knew Jesus. But notice how he uses plural pronouns when he talks about the message of Christ. What we have heard what we have seen with our eyes, our hands have touched, we proclaim to you. John writes this letter as an individual to this church, but he anchors the reliability of the message in the apostolic witness, in the witness of 
all those who knew and walked and observed Jesus Christ. And which means he's able to corroborate sound teaching and to refute unsound teaching what Jesus actually said and did because he was there. He's able to say, no, this is not what Jesus was talking about. This is not what Jesus said. Uh, He's appealing to the apostolic witness. There were still, when John wrote this letter, there were still people alive who had been there with Jesus. And so anything that denies or is disconnected from that apostolic witness cannot reliably be said to have come from Christ. So John's writing to anchor, not just to remind them, but to anchor the truthfulness, the reliability of that message in the witness of the apostles. Now, that's all nice and fine for John to do that for this church back then, when there were still people alive who'd actually been with Jesus. What do we do today when some teaching comes along? You know, there is nobody alive today who you know, was there 2,000 years ago and could say, no, 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 I was there. That's not what he said. Uh, so, so how do we evaluate the truthfulness of teaching today? Uh, John's actually going to touch on that a couple of times in his letter. But the answer is actually the same. We rely on the apostolic witness. What the apostles witnessed personally, they wrote down for later generations in what we call the New Testament. So and not only does the New Testament contain their eyewitness testimony, it is at the very same time the word of God. God was at work in and through these apostles to write his word, which is their testimony. So our standard today, our access to the apostolic witness is the Bible itself. That's how we know whether something is true or false, whether something is helpful or unhelpful. We go back to the witness. We go back to the scriptures. That's how we evaluate other teachings, and that's how we come to know Christ. And that's really the point of the gospel. That's really what John... John wants to warn them. That's fine. But he wants to do more than just warn them. He wants to anchor them in the real thing. He wants them to really know and have intimate relationship with God. And that's his final emphasis in this introduction, the aim of the gospel, intimacy with God. Look at at verse 3, where we see the explicit reason that he is proclaiming the good news of Jesus to others. This is why he's doing it. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The aim of the gospel, the fruit that it's supposed to produce among God's people, is what John calls fellowship, partnership, communion, intimate relationship. And he tells us that 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 intimate relationship is something that happens on a horizontal level. We have fellowship with one another. We have communion with one another. We share life together. But that that fellowship is at the very same time also vertical. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And you can't have one without the other. 
You can't claim to know God without communing with his body, and you can't commune with his body without having relationship with God. To know and love God and to be known and loved by him. That's the aim of the gospel, to have genuine, intimate communion together as a body with our Father in heaven through Jesus. That's the aim. Which brings us full circle. What we were made for, what we were saved for, what we, will, what we long for more than anything else, even if we don't realize it, is what God gives us through his Son, Jesus Christ. This intimacy with God. John is inviting us to come home. To come home, not to a place, but to a person. To abide with Jesus. And he's going to talk a lot about that in this, in this letter. Uh, and, and there's a word that he uses 27 times in these short letters uh, to capture this goal, this aim of communion, intimacy with God. And it's the word abide, which you see, you know, is what we've titled the series after. Uh, it's the same word that he used back in John 15 when he uses the illustration of the vine and the branches to kind of show what our relationship with God should look like. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, we don't really use that word in everyday language, abide, you know. Uh, and, and for that reason, a lot of modern translators use other words to try and capture the idea, continue or remain or live, which are fine. But I do think that that the word abide really does capture the sense of, of the word being translated a little bit better. And, and we can maybe illustrate that by thinking of another English word we do sometimes use, though not often, uh, and that's the word abode. And you ever say, welcome to my humble abode. Well, what are we talking about? Welcome to my dwelling place. Welcome to my home. That's the picture of intimacy with God. Coming home to Jesus. God wants us to abide in him, to make our home in Christ, to dwell securely in him, to find the rest that our wandering hearts can find nowhere else to experience real fellowship with God. And John wants this so badly for us that he is willing to put his own joy on the line to make it happen, uh, as it were. He says in verse 4, We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Which sounds kind of silly and self-serving, you know, at first. You know, I want you to have real fellowship with God so that my joy, that I could be happy. Uh, but if you think about it, you know, what it means is simply this. That, that as someone, uh, like John, as, as, as someone who feels responsible for the spiritual well-being of the church as a, as a shepherd like John, his own joy in Christ cannot be complete as long as his friends are in danger of departing from the truth or pursuing an intimacy that's disconnected from the Father and the Son. He will not be content or happy until he knows that they are happy in Jesus. That's his aim. Intimacy with God is Christ-centered. You cannot know God truly and intimately unless you know him 
through the person of Jesus Christ. And as we're going to see throughout the rest of this book, that intimacy uh, is not some sappy sentimentalism. Um, Sometimes we're afraid of the word or the idea of intimacy. Um, It's not a sappy sentimentalism. It's not a a shallow or cheap surface level uh, relationship. It's not just finding, you know, uh, being rescued from our problems and life going smoother. It's not checking out of this world or indulging in this world. Intimacy is Christ-centered, holy, it produces obedience. It's not a superficial compliance to God. It's not a painted-on smile. Just pretend like everything's working. And in case somebody asks you a personal question, you can just say, I'm okay. You know, it's, that's not what John's talking about here. It's a joyful obedience that comes from the heart and that's played out in a world that pushes against God and his people. It's not some vague or mystic spirituality. It is a relationship with the Son that is anchored in the Scriptures. It's not even about escaping this world for the next. It's about overcoming this world through faith. Intimacy with God is resting in the perfect love of the Father through faith in Jesus the Son. It all depends on Christ. Real fellowship, true intimacy is Christ-centered. We can't improve on him, and we cannot replace him. All we have is Christ, and he is enough. Let's pray. Lord, as we begin this journey through the letters of John. We ask that you would meet us in a special way. Lord, the idea of communion with you, uh, for some of us it is, is longed for. We want nothing more than to sit at your feet. We want nothing more than to bask in your love and your grace. Um, for some of us, that, that longing feels like a dream we woke up from a long time ago and we can't quite recall it. We know it was good and we want to go back there, but we have no idea how. And for some of us, it's it's a scary thought because we know that if we get close to you, you're going to see who we really are. And we're not sure what you're going to think. But Lord, would you not let us move forward through this book without penetrating our hearts with the life-giving, transforming word of your Son. Lord, may we not find our rest in anything else but only in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And may we be reminded of how good that is, of how satisfying, how secure. May we not be afraid of drawing near to you Because we have in Christ one who has borne all our sin and shame. And who has stood before you as our perfect representative. Clothing us in his righteousness. So that you can call us your sons and daughters. Lord, would you fill our hearts with this kind of intimacy with you in the weeks and months ahead. 
would it be a new normal to truly know and love and be confident in your love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.